as you open your Bibles this morning, back to Psalm 27, let me pause and respond to what we've been singing about in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are uh, amazed that you would save us, that you would see sinners such as us, and you would redeem us, and not by any simple work, but Lord, by the work of your Son on our behalf on the cross, Lord, we have no hope before your holiness. You are beyond us. Your thoughts are so far above us as far as the, high, as the heavens are above the earth. Lord, we cannot attain your righteousness. We cannot rival anything that, any standard that you have before us. Lord, we are guilty. We are damned. And we need your grace. We need your work on our behalf to do for us that which we cannot do and make Sinners, righteous. Truly, it is well with my soul. Lord, assist me now to proclaim your glory and to impart your word to pilgrims who are passing through this life, who are sojourners, who are looking for their eternal home. May they be encouraged by your word and equipped to do the ministry that you have before them even today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all the church said... Amen. Psalm 27 is a wonderful text. And one of the primary questions that it brings to mind is this concept that there is one thing worth everything. One pearl of great price. One thing that all of life boils down to. Now we resist points of singularity and I get it. Everything in life is, is painted in, in shades of gray. We're going through Ecclesiastes in the series normally on Sunday mornings, and Solomon paints that kind of picture for you as you go through it. Things seem to be going one way, but then they don't, and life is confusing and hard, and, and I don't really know how to see through the nonsense. I don't know who's telling me the truth. I don't know which party to vote for, you know, a lot of times. And, 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 you know, there's all these different issues that come up and we get confused by everything that comes at us. And we don't know really what the right answer is in a lot of situations. So when I say there is one thing that is necessary in life, there is a resistance within us that says, yeah, but it's not that easy. And there's a lot of things we got to do on a given day. There's a lot of things that, that we have to accomplish and that have to get done. Uh, Tom Brady has seemed to have figured out what he feels is the one thing that matters most in life. I don't know if you know who he is, but if you don't know who he is, then apparently you're under a rock somewhere. Uh, he is probably the greatest quarterback of all time, won Super Bowls galore, won every accolade. He's got pretty much everything on his name that says he's the He's the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time in NFL football. And he's so good at it that he can't give it up. He's the same age as me. I'm 45. Can you picture me out there <laughs> on the gridiron? No, he's a little bit bigger, a little more impressive than me. I get it. Uh, I think he's actually 44. And uh, he has a wife, a lovely wife and lovely children. They have a life together and all that. And now he is getting divorced because he won't give up football. He's at, he has an, a famous interview years ago where he talked about how football actually wasn't it. He's still looking for that one thing. Something isn't quite right. 
He knows it's not quite there. And at this point, he's willing to sacrifice on the altar of finding that one thing, his wife and his children. His, his relationship with his children will never be the same. I don't care what lie this world wants to tell you about divorce. This isn't better for the kids. This, this is a man who has figured out the one thing that matters most to him in life. Um, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to tell him that football isn't it. It doesn't take somebody who is a rocket scientist or who's in their 90s who has the, the wisdom of living a long time to look at what he's doing and going, dude, that's not going to do it. That is not going to cut it. There is one thing worth everything. There is one thing that the Bible peppers throughout its pages to help us understand that there is one thing necessary for all of life. It's the thing that Job had to figure out through tremendous suffering. He had to figure it out. Job thought he needed answers, but that wasn't what he needed. It's the same thing that Jacob, the patriarch, had to wrestle with his whole life. He's a 90-year-old man literally wrestling with God. He had to figure something out. It's the same truth that Adam and Eve knew as soon as they fell. What is it that we need? It's that same truth that Solomon himself has to admit in the closing pages, in the closing chapter and statement of Ecclesiastes. After all of his living and all of his chasing dead-end streets, he's forced to admit one thing is necessary in life. Moses expressed it when he said to the Lord, show me your glory. Everything Moses had seen all the tremendous things he had seen. Things that, and he's a man who had no, no rival. God spoke to him as he speaks with a friend, face to face. This is somebody who saw more than anyone, who went behind the veil more than anyone. His, his face would glow even from his speaking with God. Who could, who could want more? Moses, show me your glory. Paul and Silas got it as they were laying on their backs in a dirty prison cell, and they sang about it. They got it. Peter felt the loss of that one thing that is most necessary in life when he heard that rooster crow. And Mary illustrated the one thing that is necessary as she sat at Jesus' feet. What is it? What is that one thing? Communion. Fellowship with God. What do you need? What is it that you must have in life? What is the one thing that if you don't have it, all else falls apart? See, there are many good things that we enjoy in life, many things that we find to be uh, somewhat unlivable, you know, if we don't have them. If we don't have certain creature comforts, if we don't have uh, our wife, for many of us, if we don't have these things, one of the things I remind myself all the time of is that I absolutely love my wife, but I don't need her. I don't need her, who, who is the most important human being in my life. 
I don't need her. I want her. I want her in my life. I desire to have her in my life in every way. But that is not what is necessary. Job figured that out, didn't he? In his despondency, in his, in his darkness, his wife came to him and said, Curse God and die, Job. You don't need other things. The, the, the beating heart of the Christian is this. I need one thing. And the, the child of God, when he hears the words of Jesus in John 15, 5, when he says, look, without me, you can do what? Nothing. Do you let that sink in very often? Do you ponder the deep reality of that very often? Or do you just scoot on through the day like I do? You move on from one text or one news story or one tweet after another, and you just kind of bounce through life, not thinking about the deep reality of something as profound as that. Without me, you can do nothing. Every true child of God can echo the words here that are stated in verse 1 when David says to us, The Lord is my light and my salvation. What is life without light? I mean, it's, it's hard to even express. It's hard to even wrap your mind around life without light in it. Living in a dark, damp cave would be wretched. And then he says further that he is my salvation, my rescue. Now, some good church-going folk have lost the, the gravity and the weight of a simple word like salvation. But anybody who's been in a really bad situation in life, a really awful time, understands the tremendous weight of that word. Salvation here is a rescuer. You're, you're lost at sea and a boat comes along and scoops you up. You're a soldier who has been left behind and there's no avenue of escape. I had a friend years ago who used to talk about a time in Vietnam where he, his whole group was getting shot up and he thought he was the only one left and he's sitting there. He said he actually put down his gun, put his head up and just shut his eyes because he said he knew it was over. He said, there's no chance I'm getting out of this. I'm dead. And then out of nowhere... He heard a, and he saw a light just drop right down on his head, and he thought it was an angel. So there's no way. I was dead, rescued. That's salvation. And notice he modifies light and salvation with personal pronouns. It changes everything. It's, it's the same change that Jesus has as he expresses to the, to the disciples. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? And they say this, that, and the other. He says, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And that's all the difference in the world. It's not enough to know that God is light. It's not enough to know that he is salvation. Is he your light? Is he your salvation? And because of that wonderful reality in David's life, he can then say the second half of this. Whom shall I fear? We live in a world governed, owned by fear. 
People afraid to be canceled. People afraid to say the wrong word. People afraid to say this, that, and the other. You know, the greatest fear in people's hearts today is to be called a racist. You know, they, everybody is terrified someone's going to end up calling them a racist or use the N-word. You know what that tells you? That tells you that this culture lives and dies on the basis of what people say. I'm not saying it's right to go around using racial slurs. Of course not. The love of Christ compels us and teaches us a better things than that. But that is not the fear that we ought to have in life. This is a world that has no problem whatsoever throwing around the name of Jesus or the name of God like a tic-tac, just using it like a comma. They don't care at all about the fear of God. What they care about is what people might do to them. That will always leave you in a state of quaking knees. That'll leave you a coward. What are people going to say? Who cares? What is God going to say? Amen? David has that sorted out. That one thing he has sorted out. He has communion and fellowship with God. That's what he desires most in life. If he has that, then it doesn't matter what comes. And this isn't some you know, sissy boy wearing nice clothes up in a palace tower who's never tasted awful things. This is David. Boy who came out of a sheepfold, who took care of sheep to the extent that he killed a lion and a bear. You ever done that one? You face that down? You ever had people try to kill you like King Saul for seven years, hunting you like an animal? You ever had your own son turn the nation against you and try to destroy you? This is not some ivory palace nonsense. This isn't some professor, you know, pontificating on all kinds of philosophical ideas. This is real. This is real. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Who's your defender? Most of us have felt this at some point in life. When you're a kid, somebody's picking on you. You know, and your dad comes around, or your big brother, or your friends, and all of a sudden you go from being scared to like, what? Hey, you suddenly, everything changes. Hey, when the defender comes, you go from kind of cowering in the corner to like, what are you going to do, man? You want to do this? Everything changes. See, when you know your defender is God, why are you so worried? Why are you so shaken about elections? Right? I'm getting in your kitchen right about now. You live in Illinois. Your vote probably hasn't counted for a long time. <laughs> right? I mean, let's be real. We get awful fussy about elections. We get awful fussy about those things. And for those of you that are more in the financial world, how about this last week in the stock market? Down 600 points one day, up 1,100 the next. Is this your pulse going with it? Whom shall, I uh, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Of whom shall I be in dread? Whom shall I dread? Well, it's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Nobody. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, cannibalism, man, that is a visceral, 
roughneck crowd that wants to devour your flesh, that wants to come for you and destroy you utterly. And again, I don't know how much hyperbole David is even using. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. What's his point here? He just talked about God being his defender. And then he looks at the history of his life. And he doesn't fail to give God the glory. Have you? Maybe the reason why you're so scared of the current event in life is because you haven't looked at how he's provided in the past. Maybe you haven't written down the ways he's intervened. Maybe you haven't considered some of that. David looks back at his life and he says, Look, various people tried to destroy me like a king. And they fell. They stumbled. I followed God and pursued righteousness, and God took care of me. Though I might not have, you know, liked the, the timing or the, the, the moment in which it happened or, or how long I had to trust him for and all of that, God took care of me. Took care of me as I trusted him. He says further in verse 3, to exaggerate it further, to, to help you see the bigger picture, he says, though a host encamp against me. Now, some on the basis of this verse believe that this is David writing after Absalom, his son, had uh, rallied most of the nation against his father to kill him. I don't know that you have to go there for this exactly, but that could be the occasion. David has a lot of stories that, that would work here, but he sees a host encamped against him. I mean, I've had some enemies in life, but I've never had this. Uh, one of the most terrifying things to see and uh, to imagine would be an army encamped against you. I think uh, the scourge in many ways of the ancient world was either famine or siege. Siege warfare. You're, you wake up one morning, you go out and you look out over the walls and you see an army wrapped around your city. Everything's cut off. Everything's shut down. You can't go out. They're going to starve you out. David sees that type of, of situation. He says, though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. It's been said that there is no courage without fear. And I think that's accurate to say, but David is looking, he's, he's expressing his point poetically to the extent that he's saying, look, you're not even going to rattle me. I think it's interesting, too, when you look at the, the life of David, I don't know how scared he was, actually, of Absalom. If you go through and read through that story, you don't hear a lot of David quaking in his boots. Instead, you see him kind of slow to act, even. Uh, he has to be provoked to action a few times. And, and even at the end, when his son is killed, he's not worried. He's not celebrating the fact he's back on the throne. What's he worried about? He's devastated about his son. So I don't think David is overstating his case when he's saying, look, this, the Lord truly is the, my light. He's my salvation. He's my defense. And I'm not going to be terrified of the world around me. And now this is a tiny sliver of a nation. 
You know what it looks like over there with the map, you know. You picture the map right now, and you've got the Mediterranean Sea, and on that corner you've got Israel, this little sliver of a nation. And who was beneath them? Egypt, perennial power, always threatening. Then above them, you have Assyria, you have Babylon, you have all the ancient dominating world powers, the superpowers of the day. And in between them, you've got this little throughway, Israel. They were always under threat. There was never a time where they, you know, could really just breathe easy and not worry about the nations around them. They always had enemies. They still are surrounded by enemies. So this would be a present threat. This is not sticking your head in the sand, being unaware of the world around you. This is looking at the encamped army and going, not scared. It's not frightening me. How in the world can you have that kind of confidence? He says, the war rise against me in spite of this. I shall be confident. You know what confidence is. That doesn't really have to be exegeted. But walking into that kind of situation and scenario, man, alive, to have that kind of of strength of faith, that's tested. That's battle tested. You'll often hear about a, uh, a boxer or someone like that who uh, they will admit after a fight's over or something, they'll, they'll admit how much the crowd affected them. They'll admit that they were fine in the dressing room, you know, in the locker room getting ready. And when they came out of the tunnel and the roar began, they started to feel it. They started to doubt, and some guys flat out just cave and lose because that is overwhelming to them. It gets in their head. It affects them to such a degree as as they have no confidence. They've trained their whole life. They trained for 20 years to to fight. Now they step in a ring, and they can't do basics. Why? Because of fear. Fear is an immobilizer. David, in spite of of what's going on, no matter what it is, that the thing that is most terrifying to a person, a war rising against him, David says, in the face of that, I'll be confident. How? I believe the key to this is verse 4. One thing have I asked from the Lord. And he doesn't just ask. He says, and that I will seek. One thing have I asked from the Lord that I shall seek. If God gave you the opportunity to request of him just one thing, what might it be? You know, the, the old game you played probably as a child, something in your head about, you know, if I, if I had a billion dollars, what would I do with it or something like that? But if God came to you like he did to Solomon and said, I will grant you one thing, what would you want? David has that sorted. He says, one thing I have asked from the Lord and that I shall seek. So he's not just having pie-in-the-sky conversation. He's actually putting feet to the ground to, to pursue it. He says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Now let me stop there for a moment and paint the picture for you. When David is talking about dwelling in the house of the Lord, you know what he's talking about, I think. He's talking about the tabernacle. A tent. This isn't the glorious temple of Solomon. This is not the glorious uh, second temple that Herod puts together where he makes the outside so glorious that people said that on a sunny day it would like blind you because it was so brilliant. 
No, he's talking about the tabernacle, a tent. Not that impressive of a structure, if we're honest, compared to the things we see in our world today. So what is, what is it about this dwelling that David wants to, that he's so enamored with? This is the place where he sees the beauty of the Lord. You know, you, you picture it, and it's a, it's a simple rectangle, and within that you've got, you know, the rectangle that is the tabernacle set up, and then in front of that you've got the basin where you wash your hands, and right in front of that you've got the altar. David, as king, is not allowed to go into the tabernacle. That's not where he can go. David can go in that outer court, and he can see the altar. What do you do at the altar? You kill a lot of animals. Read the code, Leviticus. What is, what is this, this beautiful altar, granted, what is it covered in? Blood. A priest was somewhat of a modified butcher, if you understand all that they had to do. And what they, after they would kill the animal, they would take the blood and they would pour it out at the basin of the altar. So you've got this bloody altar. And David says, that's where I want to dwell. The scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians that um, the things of God are spiritually appraised and those who are blind are not able to see that. They're not able to see the value of the things of God. This is one of those situations. See, we have a world that wants to tell you some stupid idea that all things are equally beautiful, that everything is equally beautiful. We've, we've promoted that in all kinds of different ways and nothing is ugly and all that, and that is absolute nonsense and everyone knows it. Nobody thinks murder is beautiful. No one thinks rape is beautiful. No one thinks human trafficking is beautiful. No one actually thinks abortion is beautiful. That's why we hide the images even and keep that reality away from the people that are aborting the children. Don't want them thinking about that too much because if they see it, they'll be hit with that reality. Everything is not equally beautiful. So the, the problem is when it comes to beauty, just like you know morality, it consists in drawing the line somewhere. You have to say, this is ugly and this is beautiful. But our world has no concept of what is truly beautiful because that which is beautiful is defined by God. What's beautiful about the temple? What's beautiful about that altar? What's beautiful about the tabernacle that David is pondering? He's pondering deep realities of all of this with a trained eye. He is he's pondering this remarkable truth. Number one, that God is not content to dwell in heaven. He comes down among us in, in this world. Why in the world would you do that? If you understand the glory of heaven, go to your, your book of Revelation and look at the, you know, the new Jerusalem and, what, and just appear into heaven. Go to Ezekiel chapter 1, Isaiah 6, and these other places that give us a, just a glimpse of heaven. And you, you ought to ask yourself, if you're thinking it through, why? Would he condescend to come down here? Can you think of the mundane things that go on in our world that are just so beneath God as we would conceive of him? Now, exaggerate that further and think of the person of Christ. He had to get colds, sicknesses. He had to wipe his nose. Right? He had to sneeze. He had to deal with all the problems and the, the gross human functions that we have to deal with. And God didn't have to do any of that nonsense. He didn't have to walk around in sandals. 
He didn't have to walk around and be rejected. But see, David understands this incredible thing. This transcendent, almighty, awesome God has seen fit to come down and be among his people. And that's the great reality that we see when we come to the book of Revelation. God is not content, again, to be lofty and exalted alone. He must be among us. We will be with him And he will be so close to us that he's wiping away every tear from our eyes. David, in seeing the tabernacle and seeing that physical representation there, he wants to dwell there because he sees this is what God is like. This is the nature and character of God. That he is that awesome, but he's also willing to be that lowly and with us. Furthermore, the second thing he sees in the beauty of the temple is that God is also not just dwelling among us in some kind of random sense. He also speaks to us. As Francis Schaeffer said along back in the 80s, he is there and he is not silent. God exists, but he has not existed on his own, but he has come into our world, he has spoken into our world with that word that you have in your lap. God gave the law, he gave the process for how to even come to him. This is something that the ancient world didn't have with their gods. There is a famous prayer that is a prayer to the unknown God that is really quite interesting. And this this gentleman, uh, he goes through and he says, to the God or goddess that I have offended, in which way I don't know, and how it is that I offended you, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do about this. I don't know how I can fix it, but just forgive me. I'll give you whatever you want. Just tell me what it is. Okay, I know you're not going to say anything. It sucks to be me. Right? I, I added that last part. <laughs> but that's it. You lived in mystery. You lived in, in, like, I don't know. I mean, if I made Zeus mad, well, he's kind of the big deal, I think, isn't he? Yeah, but I kind of live... And, you know, I'm a, I'm a sailor, so Poseidon's kind of a bigger deal. So maybe I should appease him, and then he can kind of keep Zeus at bay. And you got all this goofy conflict, and you never really, how am I supposed to appease him? I don't know. I know the biggest sacrifice is give my daughter, so I'll just throw her in the ocean and hope that works. And that's the kind of nonsense that they lived with. I don't know who I've offended and how I've offended them, because they don't speak. David has a God, you have a God, who speaks, who gives you his word, who tells you who he is and what he expects of you, which is the final, the third thing here that would would cause David to ponder the glory and the beauty of God is that God atones for his people. He doesn't just dwell among us. He doesn't just speak to us. He also then atones for us. Another thing unheard of among other gods. He tells you the price tag for being in the relationship. He tells you what it means, what what it will take to be there with him. Jesus says it in some ways the best when you come through the Sermon on the Mount that many people seem to love but don't seem to get because Jesus says if, if you are you know to be right with God you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the price tag. So then the sinner is to say, woe is me, I am undone, I can't do that. And God says, I know. That's why I sent my son. 
David gets a great deal of that. He understood a great number of things that even shock me today to know that he didn't have the full revelation of God, but he certainly understood these general truths that God had made his dwelling among his people, that he was speaking to his people, and that he would atone for his people. That is true beauty. That's what it is to behold that type of true beauty. Now, behold is a word that's kind of archaic. We don't really use it a whole lot anymore. I know that. Uh, but we do see it at times. Priscilla, my wife, is a wedding photographer, and I will frequently see uh, one of my favorite pictures, and a lot of people's favorite picture, is the bride comes in, and then who does everybody look at next? The groom. How's he reacting to that? Right? So beautiful bride comes in, glowing, radiant, all of that, and you know, then everybody goes, well, what's the groom look like? Does he, he's usually crying, Misting up, he's speechless, and he's not like looking down at his feet, fixing his, he's not checking his phone. If he is, it'd be like, all right, stop the wedding, end this thing, this dude's a loser. You know, I mean, immediately, like, what is, what is wrong with your brain, guy? You know, I mean, just, whew. why? Because everyone expects him to be doing what? Beholding his bride. Smitten with her. David says the one thing he wants is to be able to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. We have lost the art of meditation in our very distracted society, something I'm going to talk about explicitly in the Sunday school class later, a little commercial for you. But we have lost much of that ability to meditate and to stew in something long enough that it changes us. We are used to skimming. People don't, the average American now reads one book a year. Isn't that crazy? One book a year. And that doesn't, now there's people like my dad that read four books a week because he's a weirdo, right? We can, we can all agree to that. Four books a week. Anybody else staying up with that pace? I'm not. Right, so he's reading four books a week, but then that means if he's reading four a week, well, somebody else is not reading any for like five years, if our stats are right here. And so we're so used to not reading even books. Then what do other people do? Uh, they won't even read newspaper articles. What will they read? Headlines, tweets. That's it. That minimal amount of information Friends, you will not be changed more into the image of Jesus Christ with headlines. You will not ponder deeply enough for it to make any real difference if what you have is tweet-level knowledge of God. At the same time, there are profound truths expressed in very short sentences that will change your life if you will but stop and think it through. If you will just hit the pause button and stop letting everything invade. We have distracted ourselves to the point where now, as one book called The Shallows has said, we can no longer actually sit and think deeply for prolonged periods of time. We don't read books because they don't hold our attention. 
We don't read full news articles because they don't hold our attention. See, we are giving away so much every time we click and we just get that little bit and all of that. And what we're doing is we're training ourselves to learn that way. And then you go to read your Bible and what do you say? It's boring. Well, of course it is. You've been eating cotton candy for three years and now you expect, you know, something that's legitimately good, like a steak, to taste good. You just eat straight cotton candy and Pop-Tarts, your diet is going to be all kinds of off. You're not going to even eat what's good for you anymore. And that is much of, of what has happened to us. We don't meditate on the truths that are so life-changing for us. He says further, for verse 5, in the day of trouble... He will conceal me in his tabernacle. He's going back to God being his defense. And in the secret place of his tent, he will hide me and he will lift me up on a rock. He sees how God has protected him in the past. He knows that in the future he will do the same. Why? Because he knows God is faithful. Verse 6. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. I don't know the last time you shouted for joy. Honestly. I don't know the last time you, you were bouncing with energy because of something that was exciting happening in your life. Unfortunately for most men, it's a sport. For most men, their team won. I think there were a bunch of people that were slightly happy when the Cubs finally won after 100 years the World Series, right? Jack, did you do some push-ups? Did you do some jumping jacks? What would you do? Right? Yeah, if you're a fan of a team and you've been cheering for a long time and it finally happens, you will you'll watch. I, I, sometimes I'll sit there and watch the celebration after the game's over and you look around the crowd and you see grown, adult, aged men who cry about nothing. Like, holding people and hugging random strangers and shouting with joy. They're going wild. I, I don't, I'm not really bashing that so much. Enjoy, you know, Cubs win. Harry Carey, anyway. Yeah, the Cubs win. Enjoy that. What I'm saying is, don't you, don't you feel that there's something a little bit wrong with that? When you start pondering the things of God and all you can muster is a... Right? I'm not saying you've got to be a great singer when we're going through music. I'm not saying that that has to be there, that you have to be like bellowing out like an opera singer. You don't have to be Pavarotti to be making the point that you really love the Lord when you shout for joy. But the songs that you sing and the, te the, the texts of the Bible you go through ought to move your heart. They ought to move your hearts at times where you're kind of bursting. You're kind of overflowing. Your cup runs over. That ought to be a thing that happens in the life of a child of God. He's my light. He is my salvation. He is the one thing I need. And when I start pouring over his word and knowing him more and learning new things and, and overcoming trials and not whining and complaining about the things that I used to, I get sick and instead of whining about it, I'm actually praising God. That's a victory, friend. 
Just because there's not a crowd around, you know, crying about it, doesn't mean it's not a valiant deed. We, we have lost sight of the real battles that matter so much. The, the greatest battle you will ever fight is that battle that you fight alone with God. In your prayer closet, in your time alone with Him, go to war and see it as that. Celebrate those victories when you didn't give in to that temptation. You didn't give in to that addiction. Celebrate those victories. Instead of just celebrating other, you know, superficial things like sports victories, or your kid doing well at this, that, and the other, instead of just celebrating that stuff, go back and ponder the beauty of what God is doing in the life of a sinner. That you are no longer conformed to the image of this world, but you're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now that's worth celebrating. That's worth sharing with your kids and with your wife and, and celebrating in the home and, and you know, talking to one another about. Not just the issues and the problems that have beset you and that are weighing you down. Celebrate the victories of God that he is doing in and through you. Celebrate those things. And shout with joy as you see God work in your life. Let me pray. Father, you are truly good. You are truly kind. And we are without words quite often. When we will but stop. Stop the, the moving and the, the going on and the hustle of life. And we will but stop and consider you, that you are our light and our salvation, that you are our defense of our lives. Lord, help us to make choices today even, to meditate on your truth, and to seek that which is truly beautiful before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.